song He is to me. And as we just sang that song together, what an encouraging sentiment. What a very lovely edification is found in it. And isn't it good to be able to come together today as we are. The beautiful Lord's Day that's been arranged for us to consider. Kale has already made mention of both of yesterday and today. and What a fantastic exposition of God's majesty and creation it is. It's so good to see everyone here today, our membership and visitors alike. We hope all of us will be such that our worship period together will not only be that which magnifies God's name, but it will edify you and me, charging us with a new week that God has given us. I would perhaps again express appreciation to all who came to Doyle and encouraged that meeting, both by your presence and your prayers. We certainly are thankful for that, and the congregation there certainly was as well. And as we've already mentioned, the excitement that fills our family is something that many of you have already expressed and known for quite some time. And what a great thing just to appreciate God's goodness. That goodness maybe leads us to think a little bit about the lesson this morning. Consequences of frustration. It was read just a moment ago from Galatians 6 verse 9 having to do with, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul certainly has stated in a passage like that one some encouragement that even in those matters that we may face in our life as Christians, when those times look a little bit depressing, such that they might well make us down, we have every reason to be hopeful, every reason to feel yet nonetheless that on the horizon there's the great God that motivates us. You'll notice on that slide as you come to about the midst of it, isn't it so that sometimes you and I find ourselves in circumstances where decisions that others may make, we see in it what's not ideal. We conclude in it that there are shortcomings there because it isn't based on the Word of God and maybe even the life of a congregation. As individuals are reflective of that sense of downness, a congregation may of course suffer as well. Today, why don't you and I think about several things the Word of God shares with us that can be consequences of frustration, using each one of these to help you and I analyze ourselves and to help keep these things too much at bay. Number one, you and I will see in a moment an example having to do with what we think about. And I've simply entitled it, Wrong Thinking. Isn't it true that God is intensely interested in what you and I think about? Isn't it so in Philippians 4 verse 8 that the inspired writer said, Brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. There's a very strong admonition then of six items, six elements, if you please, that you and I can utilize to fill our mind with those things appropriate. And needless to say, the actions and the language and the other attributes of life will be far more apt to flow in a good way. In Proverbs 23, verse number 7, the ancient writer put it like this, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You and I then must closely guard that which we think about, that which we meditate upon, that which we allow to be a consideration of our mind and heart. It is with that in mind, point number three is this. Frustration can 
bring ourselves to a position where we think about things in relation to God that we ought not. We think about these things that themselves are misdirected, or we allow ourselves to ponder at length upon these matters that are unwholesome. There are examples in the Bible of those who did this. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Have you ever pondered for a moment the livelihood and the character of that man named Demas? He was a companion of Paul on the missionary journeys. He was an individual who you and I find mentioned in some instances exceedingly positively. And yet, by the time we reach 2 Timothy 4.10, which was the last book Paul ever wrote, Paul says, speaking of Demas, He has forsaken me, for he loved this present world. Somewhere along the way, the thoughts of Demas turned away from the purity of the truth and the necessity and the requirement of it and began to see in the matters of the world what was more desirable and what he loved more. And so his thinking at some point began to turn, and how sad it is. He isn't the only example. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11, we'll not look at all of that which is presented, but in that text, don't you recall this interesting scene? John the Immerser, John the Baptist as we often call him, he was a towering figure in biblical consideration, the forerunner of the Christ a man whose faith, it seems, was etched in such strength and unwavering character. John had been imprisoned. It would seem that he began to have questions in his heart and mind, for he even sent individuals, messengers to Jesus and asked Him, Are you the one that's to come, or do we look for another? Maybe you and I have often wondered, how could a man so convinced and so certain reach a point when he had to ask that question? Perhaps the fullness of that discussion is for another time. But isn't it safe to say John was experiencing some difficult times of frustration. People weren't listening to him. He would preach in earnestness and fervor. And it seems that so many had no interest in what he had to say. John was asking for some edifying messages from Jesus. And the Lord responded like this, John, you've seen the lame walk, and you've seen the blind see, and you've seen the dead raised. Do you think I'm the one? In other words, the Lord simply reiterated to John, based on the mission, the character God has given you, you have reason to be upbeat and positive, and don't allow frustration to lead you too far. Point number two. What else might excessive frustration bring those who are servants of God? What about wrong perspective? I believe we'll each be interested to reflect on some of the features and attributes of this one. As you and I think about wrong perspective, let's begin by highlighting how God would wish us to always to consider matters. Our sufficiency is of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul said, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Paul knew that his success, his vitality, his very commission rested on the nature of God. And he didn't find his source of strength within himself. It is with that in mind. Proverbs 3, verse 5 points to you and me these words, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways, and He shall direct thy paths. Philippians 4.13 says, 
I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now that passage is so very encouraging. And yet in the midst of all of this sufficiency found in God, look at what frustration brought to the people of Israel. I'm sure you and I have noted it often. When the children of Israel sent those spies into the land of Canaan to spy out that land, remember they were journeying from Egypt toward that place, and they came back and sure enough identified it's a fertile and bountiful land. But there's giants there. And this description is given. We, in our own sight, are like grasshoppers in theirs. Would you consider that a moment? In our own sight, we view ourselves as grasshoppers compared to them. Look at what frustration was leading the children of Israel to do. They were making the problems bigger than what they really were. God was on Israel's side. There was no problem here, but due to their own resting upon their own capabilities, we are like grasshoppers in their side. Isn't it true that frustration in a matter like this can make a problem amplified? It can make the problem bigger than what it really is. May you and I think perhaps about the example of David. In 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1, David reached a point in his kingship. He had reigned over Israel for quite some time and much success had been enjoyed because God was with him. Israel had beaten the Philistines, conquering many others along the way. But we find such an odd presentation in 2 Samuel 24. Odd in this sense, David commanded Joab, Go and number the men. Joab immediately sensed in this a problem. David, why do you want to number them? God's on our side. doesn't matter how many people we got. David said, do it anyway. David's faith had begun to weaken. He wanted a census of the fighting men, and he carefully took that, and it was wrong. David had to be punished for this, and Israel had to be punished for it. But you'll notice when the sufficiency began to rest in himself, that frustration, that period of consideration led to some problems. You and I, you see, even as Christians, realize we shouldn't allow ourselves to come to wrong perspective or to wrong thinking due to our sense of frustration in matters of Christianity. What about number three? What else can be a consequence? A wrong spirit. Let's develop it beginning like this. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, we are encouraged to keep in mind those things called the fruits of the Spirit. Those nine attributes like love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and faith. Those are so good. In fact, the inspired writer quickly said, against these there is no law. The human family has not arranged by legislation a means of prohibiting or opposing these sweet things. And yet they're to characterize you and me as Christians. But look with me what comes next. It's possible for frustration to dwell up in the life of a Christian, a person who would wish to carry out the things of God. For instance, as it considers the nature of the church, and in so doing it brings about a spirit that isn't always like those nine things. And again, you might note these examples. What are some possibilities? A congregation might come to no murmuring. It might come to no bitterness. It might come to no disputation. 
You'll notice on that slide, I've asked you to look at these verses. In Philippians 2.14, Paul told that church in Philippi, do all things without murmuring or complaining. Now, there was a congregation. Perhaps Paul felt that there was a possibility, a tendency, a movement toward a reality. And yet he gave these words, make sure you never allow any frustration to lead to this. It is with that in mind, Galatians 5.15 goes on to say, If you bite and devour one another, take heed lest you be consumed one of another. Surely you and I can see one last thought in that. Those things seemingly are directed against that unity spoken of as we seek to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So far, these three things, that frustration, it seems, militates against all of them. Look at number four with me. Wrong words. You and I know, too, that frustration perhaps can appear in such a way that it calls into question the choice of those words. Look, look with me at this one. I would ask you to, first of all, notice Ephesians 4.29. As Paul spoke to that church in Ephesus... He made mention of them, of this idea. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That communication, that language chosen, but yet with it, what might this matter of frustration cause? You can easily appreciate these examples. Numbers 21 is one of the finest Old Testament examples. You might, in fact, want to circle that one in your thinking. The children of Israel had left Egypt, journeying toward that land of Canaan. But the text says the people were discouraged because of the way. The terrain was difficult. The circumstances surrounding it were hard. And the text says they were discouraged. What happened? Did it lead them to do anything? The very next verse says... They strove against Moses and against God. They began to strive to, in fact, complain against God and Moses. The frustration, the discouragement along the way led them to behave in a way that really was not in their best interest. In the verses that follow, they suffered mightily because of this. In fact, you and I remember, this was the occasion when some poisonous snakes came to be in the camp. And ultimately, many were bitten and died. But notice what prompted it. They were discouraged because of the way. Needless to say, you'll appreciate one more example. Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, here God had made these statements, these commandments relative to the attribute of worship. And as Abel had brought the matters, and it was so pleasing to God... Cain also brought, and he offered to God, but God wasn't pleased with what he offered. And in his frustration, in his dissatisfaction, he killed his brother. One more time, you'll notice the words that came out of his mouth. Am I my brother's keeper? Isn't it interesting to reflect on the nature of what the frustration brought into the lives of all of these examples we've seen so far? And isn't it still true that they help us see even number five. What else might be wrong or at least a consequence of frustration? What about wrong actions? It's true that some of our examples already have touched upon this one. 
but we certainly are able to look at it again. Our actions are urged the Word of God certainly to be in harmony with His will, to do what God has commanded. You'll notice particularly in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, Paul spoke to that congregation in Thessalonica and reminded them that we have behaved holily and justly and in a way consistent with the Word of God. And surely our desire today is no different. In Revelation 22, the last page in the Bible, we're told there, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. The obedience then to the commandments of God brings us to notice those actions are pleasing unto heaven. But could it be that in frustration I might make choice to act in a way that would be inconsistent with the Word? Surely you can think about these examples. Moses was a great man, a great leader, one who was prompted and motivated inasmuch as he served the God of heaven to do what was right in leading Israel to Canaan. But in Numbers chapter 20, the people were thirsty. In fact, they were very much without the necessary water, and God gave this commandment, Moses, you speak to the rock, and I will provide the water. You and I recall that Moses chose a different course of action. Was he motivated in frustration? Was he motivated by a sense of dissatisfaction in light of the people's response? At any point, he struck the rock, not once but twice. And he took the glory to himself rather than directing it to God. And as he did, of course, God was displeased with his action. Frustration, it seems from the context, was at least a motivating factor in it. That isn't the only example. You and I might notice Saul in 1 Samuel 18. There was a man who himself had been a rather notable king in Israel. As he led the people, he did so in such a great way at first. But the time came when he began to take credit for himself and he began to look differently upon it and maybe in frustration, he realized of David, it was said, David hath killed his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. He was jealous. And as he did that, it was a continuing spiral downward, wasn't it? But one more time, look at what frustration, at least in part, caused. It caused wrong actions. Number six, what else might this bring? What about a wrong example? Isn't it grand to think about the sweet example that a Christian can be? As you and I edify and encourage one another in the most holy faith. And yet we appreciate that example as highlighted among other places in 1 Timothy 4. In the 12th verse of that chapter, Paul said, Be thou an example of the believers. And then he listed a number of particulars including things like faith and conversation. That's one's way of life one's choices and one's particulars in life. Inasmuch as that example is therein described, notice what frustration can do. Because our life as Christians, inasmuch as it is that open example of Jesus. Look at what these examples put before us. What about the warnings of the Word of God? Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Our culture motivates us often to make those choices like them. 
And it hurts us and it saddens us to see what those choices are, and yet we're prompted by that very motion to do the same. And yet God told Israel, don't you follow a multitude to do what's wrong. There is a right and there is a wrong. And aren't you thankful we have the Word of God that informs us of that distinction? That it the only place something like that is found in 1 Samuel 2 verses 12 and following. That description is given here of people that were religious, the sons of Eli. And yet they caused the people to abhor service to God. Their behavior was such that they were a stumbling block before others. Oh, how hurtful that was to Israel. Look at what frustration was beginning to dwell up in the Israelites because of the example of these who should have been their leaders and these who should have been so powerfully directed toward God. So far as we've looked at these six things that frustration was able to bring about, the examples in the Bible are very open ones and very encouraging ones. Number seven. Not only can these things be before us, but may I suggest a consideration based on these passages of a wrong emphasis. The Bible hell tells us what should be our main emphasis in life. As those who are Christians, we think about verses such as, If any man will come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Borrowing the wordings of Luke 9.23. And yet, as we see examples in the Bible of those who did that, we're admonished and encouraged to follow the pathway that they tread. But of course, you and I know the devil would wish us nothing more than to become frustrated to the point that we pick a different path. We become those who, perhaps like Diotrephes in 3 John 9. What was his emphasis? He wanted the glory for himself. He wanted a name for himself. He wanted others to, in essence, bow at His feet and let Him be the directing guide. He wanted to be the big cheese, if you please, in the group. There ain't anything wrong with one using his or her talents and abilities in the way God would wish. But to exalt oneself unduly so puts ourselves in the very plight of those who were judged so sternly. Did Jesus say in Luke 11, The one who will abase himself, God will exalt. But the one who exalts himself, God will abase. Those examples we find in that passage and others remind us then an emphasis in life that points to myself. Much like Diotrephes did. Didn't John say, I will judge him when I come. I'll deal with him when I come. We aren't told in the Bible what conversation ensued when John made it to where Diotrephes was. But one has to believe that it was a sentence of directness and a sentence whereby Diotrephes was admonished for his well-being and that of the church to behave differently. As you and I examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, certainly we're excited to learn from those grand lessons of days gone by. Number eight is this one. Even prayers, you'll notice too, were misdirected. As you think about the examples listed in light of this one, doesn't it help us see that this frustration that can develop within one has caused a number of issues even for the great people of like Moses and others? 
Certainly prayer is a tremendous blessing, isn't it? That genuine privilege that's ours to approach the Creator of all things, to rest our cares and our concerns upon Him, to beseech His aid and His guidance and His help, to plead for His direction to be with us in those matters we face. Certainly as a church prays to Him, Paul often spoke about congregations as they would direct prayers to the great God of heaven, desiring that He would lead and guide and bless their efforts. So too, it's fair to say that those kind of things lead us to note these. In James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, the inspired writer pointed out that inasmuch as prayers ought to not be amiss, one could ask, what makes a person pray amiss? The text there says, it was when those prayers were directed for merely one's only fleshly good. I simply pray for what I want, and it seems that I miss the point of, Thy will be done. Isn't it a great thing to appreciate that we have a desire to pray consistent with God's will, knowing He always knows what's best, and He always will do what's best. As our prayers lead us to notice what great example Jesus gave us, when His disciples asked Him, Teach us to pray, the Lord's reply was this, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. At that point, if we pause and say, There has been a tremendous emphasis so far in those words on the nature of God, the accomplishment of His will and the reality of that in the lives of those even respecting where their food comes from. But then he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That prayer has presented such richness, such an incredible reality of where the emphasis in life is and what prayer can be. How often have you and I been refreshed with prayer, encouraged by it, motivated by it? And yet, if frustration in our work as Christians were to reach the point where maybe our prayer turns to be a more selfish thing, it turns to be more focused upon things that are inappropriate, or at least things less than ideal. As you and I close that slide, notice these examples. There was a scene in Numbers 11, verses 14 and following. Moses himself, as he led the children of Israel, he reached a point of frustration on another occasion, and there, notice what he prayed. His prayer turned inward. It turned to a reflection upon self rather than accomplishment of the greatness of God. I suspect that's not even the grandest example that comes to our mind. For I suppose we'd be remiss not to mention Elijah. Elijah, of course, was one who labored in a time when the work of God seemingly was very, very low. As far as Elijah knew, there was no one faithful but him. He couldn't look and see anybody else attempting to maintain fidelity to God. And he even admitted to God, God, I'm the only one. God had to tell him, Elijah, you're not the only one. There are seven other people who've never bowed the knee to Baal. 
God knew there was more than just him, but in his own frustration or at least sense of encouragement, Elijah turned inward. And God had to help him appreciate in a very strong way. You be faithful, Elijah. There are nearly as many who have failed as you perhaps think. Frustration, you see, is a powerful thing, isn't it? It's impacted God's people and their work in the church or in the Old Testament, even in the days of Israel. As you and I close that slide, we'll do so with one final thing, and it's the conclusion of the lesson. As we've studied one by one these eight matters that have been brought about in light of these consequences, why don't we summarize it like this? Everything from wrong actions to wrong emphasis to wrong thinking to wrong direction, all of it has been expressed. And the Bible warns us in a very beautiful way to be individuals mindful of those possibilities and to be encouraged with statements like the one that's our lesson text. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I save that to the conclusion slide so that we could use a moment and reflect on the wording. The Galatian letter was written again to a group of congregations in the Galatian area, and that was a group of congregations that quite frankly were suffering some very strong opposing forces to them. And yet in the midst of that, Paul said, Let us not be weary. It might be easy for one to quit, to throw up and say, This Christianity just isn't working, and things appear to be sliding downhill. Paul said, Don't do that. Let's not be weary in well-doing. Why? For in due season. May you and I use that as a reminder. God's timetable may not be ours. You and I may not always sense when the new season is. Maybe it's two months from now. But in the great wisdom of God, maybe it's two years from now. But we are assured this, in due season we shall reap. Note the certainty and the encouragement. We shall reap if we faint not. If we faint, we lose the blessedness of that reward. We lose the sense of the reaping. That farmer who puts out the crop but then doesn't tend it due to the discouragement of the moment. When the harvest time comes, there will be mighty little, if anything. As Christians, aren't we encouraged, motivated? And the Pippin congregation would certainly wish to fall into that consideration to in due season, understanding the promise of reaping if we faint not. This morning, as we've considered these things, these consequences... May you and I march forward and onward and upward in the reality of what's ours, the beautiful commission we've been given. We were redeemed and saved from sin as those that are blood-bought members of the body of Christ. And we march in step with God's commandments. We do so following the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 10, because He is the forerunner to heaven. Today, if there might be someone in the audience upon reflection of the nature of these things we've studied today, or even other matters in life. May I say, if you've never become a Christian, you're marching toward the wrong place. If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right and knowing the Lord died for you, don't you want to come into His kingdom? Don't you want to be a member of His body? If we could help you today in doing that, it'd be our privilege. 
the gospel plan of salvation. As the Lord has given it is this. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, let us not be weary in well-doing. Doing what's appropriate and right. Even when we do that which is right, the world may oppose it. They may, in fact, wage strong warfare against it, but let it not deter us. We shall reap if we faint not. Today, if we could help you as a wayward child of God, praying to God on your behalf, encouraging you in your return, Jesus again has told you what you must do. Repent of those sins. Confess them. And if they're known in a public way, do that before this audience today. We'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways today, we'd encourage you to let us be of assistance to you and to do it while together we stand and while we sing.